Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I am a writer and an entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've wondered what makes life meaningful and what makes work worth doing. In my day job, I help schools and universities, entrepreneurs and leaders learn how to market and grow their reach. You can learn more about my company, Your People, at yourppl.com. I also am a writing coach, and I teach my signature Find Your Voice Writers Workshop, through writingworkshops.com and at makemeaning.org. I help people, organizations, and movements find their voice and gain the confidence to use it. Because everything we do means something. Why waste your moments? You are needed. You can make the world better. And by caring about the people you encounter and the tasks you take on, you get closer every day to finding your unique meaning and living life with purpose. This podcast focuses on all the many ways people make meaning in the mundane. You'll hear stories of courageous people daring to imagine a life they love. If you like what you hear, give us a review on any of the podcast platforms you find this show. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Sometimes life turns devastating or catastrophic, and you have no choice but to follow the fault lines to wherever they may lead. A tragedy can bring into focus what we are meant to do, or free us from the confines of former obligations to give ourselves permission to build a life we love. For Nancy Sharp, the sudden death of her husband when their twins were toddlers turned everything upside down. She left New York City for Colorado and became an expert in guided autobiography. The author of the best-selling memoir, Both Sides Now, a true story of love, loss, and bold living, tells the story of Nancy's own resilience and how she helps others find the same strengths in themselves. Nancy believes resilience is the new currency for success. She speaks widely about how to make bold change and writes essays, articles, and columns for publications around the world. I'm thrilled to welcome Nancy Sharp to the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So I want to start by talking about your book. I read it. It is incredible. I couldn't put it down. I literally sat on the couch and just poured through the pages and I found it riveting and gut-wrenching, poetic and pragmatic. And I I honestly think I cried all the way through it. Um, I really, I really did. So I want to ask you about the process of writing the book um, and putting such an intimate story in the world. And especially with the tone of voice that you took with it, like how, you know, how you decided to narrate it. So Walk me through that process. How was it for you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for your your kind words. That that really means a lot. You know, writing is a layered process, and it took time, um, as it should really in most instances, to um, figure out the right way to tell the story. You know, when I first began to write both sides, now I wrote it the only way I knew how to, which was in a traditional way with straight, long narrative chapters. But I have to tell you, two years into that process, I felt really overwhelmed by my own words, by my own story. And I thought, good God, if I'm feeling like this, imagine how my reader is going to feel. And, you know, I was taking uh, several craft classes at a the Lighthouse Writers Workshop here in Denver. Mm-hmm. 
um, where I have since taught. And, you know, it was in one of those classes, we were reading a work by Abigail Thomas, who I love, and it was one of her books called Safekeeping. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly saw the way I needed to tell my story Mm -hmm. in these short chapters with lots of white space on the page. Mm -hmm. Because really and truly, I knew in my heart that I didn't want to write my story just for the sake of writing my story. Mm -hmm. What I really wanted, Lynn, was to find a way for readers to reflect on their own stories as they read my words. Mm -hmm. And so that white space was essential, I think, for allowing readers to do just that, also to give them moments to pause and to process, right? Because certainly the beginning part of the story, it it is a tough story. So you also asked me about the voice. You probably noted, because you're an astute reader, that in the first part of the book, when Brett, my first husband, is is alive, I chose to use the second person. So I did that very intentionally because I wanted to create an intimacy on the page and an intimacy with the reader. Mm -hmm. But you can't sustain a whole book using the second person. That would be very difficult to pull off. And I don't think it would have been as effective. Mm -hmm. So what I opted to do was at the point in the book where Brett dies, I then switched to the third person to create more of that emotional distance that was necessary. I love that. And I was wondering about the you, the the second person. And because I don't read many books that are written that way. And it's hard to pull it off. Yeah. And but it worked. It was just such a good format for what you were doing. I mean, there's a lot about the book we could talk about. And I have many other questions to ask you too, which we'll get to. But for the book, you know, like I do wonder what your intention was. You said you were writing it for other people to access their own experiences. You went through a really, um, I guess, individual, rare experience. Like it was not, a lot of people don't go through what you went through. I mean, people go through other things, but you know, that kind of trauma, that kind of devastation is so unique. And so I just wonder. Well, you know, it's funny. I don't think it was so well. Okay. I think it was very unique that life, the way life and death collided on the very same day for me, right? Yeah, where yeah. where I literally, I became a mom and hours later on the very same day, we learned that Brett's cancer came back and it was inevitable that he was yeah. going to die. Yeah. That was unique in terms of the enormity and the sweep of life and death all at once. But the universality, right, of loss, mm-hmm. that is something that we're all going to experience at one point or another. And it was really like, I felt that when I really began to process my experience, when I really began to distill it, because it was really an entire decade of caregiving and then mourning. What really helped me more than anything is the ability to hold everything at once. It was too much to sort of silo, if you will, Mm -hmm. and to talk about just, you know, the before and after. I I couldn't really do that. For me, it was like, there's no either or, there's just an and, you know, it's just the both sides now of life and death. And that is the perfect metaphor for my story. So thank you, Joni Mitchell, for writing that song. (laughs) Well, you know, it's and it's funny because when I write, I, I sit down and I write. And then I say, okay, well, what's this about? You know, like I just start with an idea or a memory or, or right. whatever. And and I I make sense of it myself as I'm writing through it. And then I know there's going to be a lot of work down the road. You know, I'm talking mostly about essays, not when I've written books, when I have that bigger right. project. So one of the things that I often struggle with is, well, what is the theme here? What am I trying to, you know, really focus on? Even if there are multiple themes that will come out. Right. So did you know at the beginning? No. That, 
So tell me how yeah. you discovered that. Well, it's kind of similar to your process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very layered, right? Uh-huh. So it took me a few drafts. The fact that the song, you see the song, both sides now, I kept, you know, I kept listening and listening and listening to that song over and over and over again as Brett was essentially dying, even before he died. Okay. You know, when that movie Love Actually came out in November of 2003, uh-huh. and Brett had had a good day that day, and um, so we went to the movies. Now, he had hospice at home, but we went to the movies that night. He was very yeah. sick, but we went to the movies that night, and uh, not far from our house. And when I heard that song again, obviously it's an old song, yeah. but when I heard it and I saw it in that movie, it was like, a current ran through me yeah. because, um, and it just spoke to me. And then I began to listen to it and I played it even after the key died. And, you know, my kids were babies and then toddlers, they thought it was hilarious. The idea of ice cream castles in the sky. <laughs> and so I just would think when I was writing, I just thought about that song and it sort of came to me. And then it just made sense that that was a unique way that I could render my experience. But no, I don't think I really set out with an agenda. I'm not an outline kind of person, especially with something like this. I needed to sort of figure out how I needed to tell it. And quite frankly, I then had to strip part of it back. So I wrote... Uh, a lot more originally about my second husband Mm -hmm. coming to Colorado. You know, one of my editors who I was working with said, you know, it's too much. You can't really have two weddings in the same book. It's a little bit too contrived. Uh It's really Uh better to say less um, and to leave the reader wondering. Hmm. So it's, it's a process, but that theme Yeah. And, you know, I I hear this from a lot of students. I teach guided autobiography workshops. I've been a book coach for a number of years, but I'm now really doing it more group format. Uh And I tell my students all the time that you really have to let the story dictate the structure. You should never, ever try to impose a structure on a story. You just don't know. Hmm. And there's so many different ways to render an experience. And you just... I think have to get into it. Now, that is not to say that I didn't go through all of my journals and I went through medical records, of course, and I picked out the scenes, Mm -hmm. right? And the stories and the moments that felt the most true to me. Mm -hmm. And so I did a big dump on the floor Mm -hmm. and then I, you know, I figured out, okay, which ones I was going to put into the book. By then I had figured out I was going to do something in short, right? Telling chapters. And then I had to figure out, okay, well, does this scene, does this story really kind of support this theme of my book? And if it did, great, it stayed in. If it not, you let go of your darlings. Yeah. I know it's hard to let go of those. (laughs) It really is. So, right. But you know, a mentor told me this once, it's like, be efficient. If it doesn't work for that one book, right, then use it for something else if you like it. So is there another book in process? Is there a next Well, no, it's funny because actually um, I've had several people ask me that. And just lately, I've been thinking about kind of a follow-up to this, Hmm. kind of like looking at life from this side now. Oh, I love that. I just got chills. That's so nice. And I think that's all I want to say at this point. So, All right. Well, we'll do a part two when you get there. Okay. 
Great. Um, Thank you. So yeah. So with the loss of, of your first husband, you, you endured an unimaginable tragedy and I know that it led you to make big changes in your life. Um, so I want to understand that confluence of events and how it brought you to a new purpose that you probably wouldn't have seen had you not gone through all of those different steps. So talk totally. to me a little bit about all those changes and how you came to Colorado, how like your next chapter, and we'll get into the guided autobiography as well. Right. So I was so exhausted after Brett died because it had been, as I said, you know, almost seven years of caregiving and then the very hard years of mourning that followed. Yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I was a, I was a mom of preemie twins with some special needs. Mm-hmm. I was in New York City, a super fast-paced environment. I had wonderful family support, wonderful friends, and I still felt terribly alone. Mm-hmm. I felt completely overwhelmed by everything that had happened. I feel, I felt like, you know, this city, this place that I had called my home for so many years, it used to energize me. Mm-hmm. It just exhausted me. Yeah. And I, I just like, I lost my, my zest, if you will, for wanting to, to live and to go forward. Yeah. Uh, and, and I got also terribly caught up in the uh, madness and it is sheer madness of trying to get your kids into a decent public school kindergarten in New <laughs> yeah. York City. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't have kids who were gifted and talented. I had kids who were premature and who had special issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my kids were not writing the dictionary at three years old. <laughs> right, my kids right. were not speaking four languages by the time they were four. Right. And I got so tired and nauseated hearing the stories, right, of all of these really uptight, yuppie, you know, um, mm-hmm parents probably would have been like me, maybe if I had kids like that, I don't know. And I just had to get, I just had to get off the treadmill really. Mm. So what happened is I was um, driving my car from New York city to Connecticut to visit my parents for the weekend. Uh, One March day in 2004 and a dear friend of mine from college was sitting next to me. And I just, I was, you know, continuing with the same old rant that I had been on for by then, like a good year and a half where I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with New York. I just, yeah. I'm done. I can't take it anymore. And I just blurted out, I wish I could just move to Denver. Mm. And so my friend Lisa said, well, why can't you? Right. I right. said, oh my gosh, Lisa, I can't just pick up and move to Denver. How am I going to do that? <laughs> right. I can't pull the kids away from their parent, you know, their grandparents and I'm going to have to buy a house and I mean, I had a million reasons why I couldn't just do that. And, you know, my friend Lisa, who is a person of great faith, she just very calmly looked at me and she mirrored the longing in my heart. And she said, you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. Well, I want you to know, you know, within 20 minutes, I was moving to Denver. I was still driving. I was still driving the car. We were still on the Merritt Parkway. Wow. But life was no longer driving me. I had made the decision right then and there. I took the power back into my life. I found my power, my voice. And I said, I am going to do something different for us. Okay. So why Denver? My closest friend from college lived there. And every time I would visit her and Brett and I would visit her over the years, we just fell in love with the lifestyle, the scenery. And I thought, this is the moment. This is the time they're going into kindergarten right? I mean, it'll be a easier, simpler life. Mm -hmm. I can get away Mm -hmm. from the hustle and bustle. It's more affordable. There's sunshine. The sun shines in Denver over 300 days a year. There are mountains that I could look out and 
you know, feel small and I could sort of feel sturdy and feel my place against the bigger world around me. Mm-hmm. It's really what we all needed. Yeah. So that was June 2006. And I really haven't looked back since. That's amazing. And so how did you then, you stepped into this new life, this new place, you had space, you had air, sun. Um, by the way, I had a college boyfriend from Denver who commented on the number of sunny days because we're in Michigan where we don't have oh, that many. Oh, I know. So, exactly. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I have actually, a, you're right. <laughs> I, have a, I have a student of mine who lives in Ohio and she said, you know, she had to buy a sun lamp to get <laughs> the winters. I said, does that really work? She said, yeah, it's so bad that like for three months out of the year, the first thing in the morning, she has to sit in front of the sun lamp. That's so heartbreaking. Oh my gosh. Um, but so you moved and you had this whole new you know, life that you were building, plus little kids who still needed a lot from you. Yeah, a um, lot. How did you then step into this guided autobiography, book coaching? Like, tell me about that oh. trajectory. Well, you know, I went to graduate school and then my first book came out in 2014. And I started to get a lot of um, interest in the book. And I started to get a lot of interest in having me speak and to share my story. Mm-hmm. And one thing kind of led to another. And I, I, I learned about speaking. Uh, and, you know, it's not like I had ever really thought about becoming a public speaker, but I thought I should be smart about this because I'd been in public relations before. And I really was not at all interested in getting back into public relations, the world had changed. Mm-hmm. I just really, I wasn't interested in that at all. Yeah. Um, so one thing led to another. And, you know, um, in the course of always trying to grow as a speaker and as a workshop trainer, working in the area of resilience, mm-hmm. I came across uh, the guided autobiography curriculum. Um, which is a decades-long uh, curriculum for helping people tell their life stories. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Hmm. I should look into this, and maybe that's something that I can I can use some material in my training programs. Or, okay. you know, people had been coming to me as a book coach. I never, ever proactively encouraged that. I did it on the side quietly, mm-hmm. and I, I liked it. But I'll tell you what I really, really wanted to do was to work with groups. I felt like I could serve more people if I worked more with groups. So this just gave me a platform to do it. So I got certified as an instructor about, you know, the year before the pandemic, nobody knew there would be a pandemic. And I just loved this idea of reflecting on stories and reframing one's narrative, because in order to be resilient, right, you have to move beyond the things that hold you back, you have to be able to transcend challenges. And sometimes that means rewriting your story or rewriting a part of your story, the part that's possibly holding you back, right? In my case, that was grief. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew that if I stayed in New York City, a place that had run its course for me, I did not feel like I could wholeheartedly move forward in my life. And so I had to sort of author a different story for myself. Um, And so I just, you know, when the pandemic happened, I, I was... I was connected with instructors around the world and, you know, it was really interesting just to see uh, how many new students they were getting Mm -hmm. and the comments they were getting. And I I realized, you know, I think I need to launch some online classes because this is a moment in time when people desperately need connection. They're scared. Nobody really knows how this is going to turn. The speaking just plummeted during the pandemic. Nobody was hiring keynote speakers. I mean, my business just completely dried up. 
So I also had to get creative. But I was really fortunate that I have a writing background and I was fortunate that I could actually, once I got my act together, I could go ahead and teach guided autobiography. Mm -hmm. So I did. I put some energy, you know, and and I really committed myself to developing a course and Mm -hmm. I started small and it's just really taken off. And I love it. And I have six different classes a week I've been teaching. I've had students who I've nurtured really the entire year and now they want more. I mean, it's an amazing position to be in when you have to tell your students, okay, thank you. But now I I need to hit the pause button and I need to, (laughs) and I need to regroup. And yes, we we have to take a break because uh, the teacher needs to, you know, nourish herself. So it's just really exciting. And it's made me think about how important it is to tell our stories Mm -hmm. and even more so how important it is to own our stories. But when we tell our stories, right, we become more resilient because when it's in the in the act of unburdening ourselves, is in the act of making meaning, of reflecting on our stories, of distilling and of sharing, we come to feel more empowered. So, you know, my whole program is called Tell Your Resilient Story. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited and I feel like the guided autobiography has really led to um it's made me see my business entirely differently and it's made me see my purpose entirely differently. I find that this really is what I was meant to be doing or what I am meant to be doing. Okay. I am meant to be helping people leave their mark in the world. So as I say, you know, I, I am meant to help people, right. Figure out what matters most to them. Mm-hmm. I'm meant to be doing that on the written page mm-hmm. and also from the stage. And yeah. I love it. I feel very, very, excited and passionate about it. Tell me a little bit about this concept of resilience and why that's so crucial to your business concept and then how it's resonating with the people who are coming to you. Well, for me, you know, it's not like I set out to become an expert in resilience. It's not something I ever thought about. But when I really looked at my story and I tried to figure out, you know, what are the themes? Like how, because a lot of people would say to me, well, how did you just do that? How did you pick up and move with two little kids across the country? And mean you mean to tell me that you met your second husband through a magazine and you really did that? And, uh-huh. you know, how do you put yourself in these new situations? And, you know, I realized that for me also, I definitely needed to move beyond grief. I was done with grief. Okay. Now some people might say you can never really be done with it. Well, you know, it's always a part of me. It's always a part of my story, of course, but you learn to move through it. Mm -hmm. But resilience is more nuanced. It's more internal. Mm -hmm. And it's like the what now, what next, Mm -hmm. right? That's what came to me. And so I studied, I really began to read and to do a lot of research on resilience, on post-traumatic growth, um, which is a term now people are talking about more in the wake of the pandemic about Mm -hmm. things we can learn. Mm -hmm. I began to research grit and emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. and change management and leadership because I love to work with businesses and and groups Mm -hmm. and corporations. Mm -hmm. And I sort of put together a framework called the resilience framework Mm -hmm. that I thought would really um, help Uh, individuals and leaders be able to put resilience into practice in their own lives. So it is a simple, easy to use model that um, is really all about helping to identify challenges that hold us, right? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. looking at ways we can reframe those possibilities, Mm -hmm. which means you have to go beyond black and white binary thinking. Mm -hmm. You've got to be in the space of gray, right? Mm -hmm. This nuanced place of gray, which is where resilience and risk-taking and creativity is born. Mm -hmm. That's the both sides. That's the both sides now, right? Right, right. Um, And then you have to be able to put yourself in the path of opportunity. We both bless Zoom and we bemoan Zoom, (laughs) right? It is the both sides now of the technology (laughs) too. It is a blessing and a curse. Here's, you know, the curse is that my eyes hurt, right? And and it's a lot of screen time, right? But the blessing is that I have students from all over the country. I've got students from different parts of the world that want to do this. And you can do that. And we're all connected and we learn from each other. And it is absolutely marvelous. That is so cool. Yeah. You know, I, I'm in marketing and PR um, as a profession, but a writer by passion. And um, I created some courses for Waldorf and independent schools, because that's really my niche and to help them learn how to market. So they have limited budgets and I'm trying to empower them with the skills they need to do that. And the great, I mean, I've taught on zoom for a few years now, but the great thing about it is that I have schools in Australia and Canada and the U.S. that are taking part in these courses. And to me, that's Uh really cool because I'm not getting on a plane to Australia tomorrow, but I can impact them from a distance. So that is a really cool thing. It's really, really great. It's really led to some wonderful conversations. You know, I have a student, um, I have students who are in their 30s. I have, uh, I think my oldest students are 93. I have several, 93-year-olds. But I have one student who's 86 and, you know, I've never even met most of my students in okay. person, okay. really, yeah. because this is just people are hearing about it now and the yeah. word is spreading, which is great. I have this 86-year-old student in New York. She said, I feel we're just intimate strangers. <laughs> I and I it. thought that was such a great way to put it. Right? That's really, really cool. Yeah. All right. So I have two more questions for you. So one sure. is, you know, you were talking about nourishing the teacher and, and you know, we can let our work get away from us where we're so into it that all of a sudden it consumes the time and day. What are some of the daily practices that you have to really keep your equilibrium, to sort of focus your purpose so that you don't run away with everybody else's? It's a really, really good question because I did start to feel, you know, uh, soon after I began this process and especially when I began, it began to grow and I was having a lot of classes and, you know, some people want to share sort of very things on the surface. Mm -hmm. Maybe they really don't like to go deep. They don't have to. People who take these classes, you certainly do not have to have had an experience like mine. You don't have to have any trauma. In fact, I hope you haven't, right? I hope you can come and just write happy things or bright things. Uh, Yeah, I had to work with myself a little bit just to make sure that I know, you know, I'm not, I'm a vessel Mm -hmm. and I'm a guide is really what I am. And I'm a muse. Mm -hmm. I call myself my new social media handles are story muse. Ah, Let me be your muse. Let me be your muse to help you tell your stories. But your stories aren't my stories. They're your stories. Right. Right. So I have to, I get to hold your stories, but then I have to almost have a ritual where I take a deep breath at the end of my classes and I go for a walk around the block or or I do a stretch or I do something right Mm -hmm. to separate because you do, I mean, in order for me to give my best to my students um, and I, I did not realize how, but how nourishing and potentially depleting teaching can be. Yeah. Right. Unless you're really, really giving your all to your students and you're, you're, you're present. So in order for me to be 
my most present, mindful, conscious self, there are things I do. I mean, I try to write every day in a journal. I try to meditate. Mm-hmm. I try to get some exercise. I mean, these are sort of, it sounds trite, but these are the things I really need to do yeah. for myself. So I want to close by asking the question that I ask every one of my guests on the Make Meaning podcast, which is that, you know, this show is about how people find meaning and purpose in life and work. Um, and it can be really hard to figure out, you know, what what am I meant to do? What am I here for? So I wonder if you have any words of wisdom for our listeners about, you know, how do they go in pursuit of that meaning and then use it to guide purpose-driven work? What would you tell them? I would say they should come check out my guided autobiography classes because it's all about making meaning that it really is. I mean, I've had students say, wow, because of this, I never knew this, or I think now I'm going to do this. Um, so, but that's not feasible for everybody, obviously, (laughs) uh, But I, you know, I think just trying to get quiet, trying to be still, I love the idea of meditation and savoring stillness, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing takes time. Mm -hmm. I wrote that sentence in both sides now, and I come back to that sentence a lot because I think there's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. We can't always see what we're meant to be doing, Mm -hmm. but the more we see, the more we see. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. once you begin to open up your eyes and you begin to sort of pay attention to mm-hmm. the things that feel good mm-hmm. and to the things that don't feel good. Right. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the like the resources that embolden you? Mm-hmm. What are the who are the people who are the triggers you should stay away from? Right. Yeah. Like yeah. just being aware of all of being aware and observant mm-hmm. of as many things in your environment Mm -hmm. as you can be and being curious, get curious, you know, just take time to read. And I don't, I mean, you know, Google is amazing. Take time to explore, but talk to people, Mm -hmm. go take a walk, Mm -hmm. right. With somebody who sets your mind on fire, listen to a podcast, Mm -hmm. Um, go for a run, you know, take a nice bath, have a glass of wine and just, just sit back on the, lawn if you have lawn. Um, I don't think we do enough of those things. Just quiet our minds and and let ourselves just really, really think. Um, And that to me is where, you know, these moments of change can happen. I mean, they don't need to happen. They don't need to be born Mm -hmm. from times of crisis. It's a mindset. I mean, resilience really is a mindset also. Mm. It's nothing more than that. Yeah. And it's, it's not something you have to be born with, you know, it, it, it's something that you practice and you harness every day by paying attention. Interesting. Well, Nancy Sharp, I'm so grateful to have this time with you. Thank you for being on the Make Meaning Thank Podcast. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.